of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43. And as you turn there, just to want to let you know uh, where we're headed, headed in terms of uh, sermon series and things like that. So uh, we uh, concluded our Lenten sermon series, which was titled, I Am, looking at the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And through that series, we, we were able to kind of dig a little bit more deeply into uh, the identity of Christ, who Christ really is through these I Am statements. And and so in uh, talking with the, with the elders, we... Uh, we uh, and, and praying about where to go next, we decided for a, a little while, I don't know exactly how long, but to kind of follow that series with a seri- series titled, You Are. And so from I am who Christ is to you are exploring our identity in Christ. And so um, we'll be here for a little while. I don't know exactly how long. I guess however long the Spirit leads. And then uh, the plan for now after that is, because, you know, I, I, my preference is always to preach through books. And, uh, and so um, the plan that, as of now is to, is to preach through the book of Romans. Um, big undertaking, I know. We'll be there a, long, a good long while. Um, probably not as long as Martin Lloyd-Jones. It took him 12 years to, to preach through the book of Romans. I don't anticipate it taking that long. Um, but we'll, and we'll take some breaks here and there, but um, uh, that's our, our plan as of now to uh, do this series called You Are for a time and then uh, turn our attention to the book of Romans. So having said that, if you have your Bibles and are there to Isaiah chapter 43, uh, before we read those verses, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is good to gather in your house to worship, and it is good to open up your Word which has been given to us by the power of your Holy Spirit for our good and for your glory, Lord, that we might grow together as your people through your word. And I pray that we would do that this morning and that your spirit would speak to us, O Lord, through these words from the prophet Isaiah. Lord, cultivate our hearts to receive them well. May this word be planted deep in us to bear fruit of transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand this morning for the reading of God's word from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. 
I'll bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You may be seated. One of the questions that we, uh, the deep questions that we face as we go about our lives is a question of identity. And of course, the world offers many ways to discover your identity from personality tests to, to dream assessments to, to magazine questionnaires. And as I was uh, looking into this uh, matter, this topic of identity, which is, of course, everywhere around us uh, in, in, in media and everything, as I was looking into it this past week, I even came across a BuzzFeed quiz that relates your identity to the serial Lucky Charms. So by answering a series of questions related to the magically delicious charms, the quiz promises to reveal which charm you are, and thus in revealing which charm you are, you will discover your true identity. Now, the, the quiz only took a minute, so I decided to take it. And I learned that I am, in fact, the blue moon, meaning I am an emotionally intelligent, insightful person with a penchant for creativity. Now, I thought that described me fairly well, but when I ran it by Lori, she said it didn't describe me at all, <laughs> which was a little discouraging. And so maybe the answer to identity is not found in Lucky Charms after all. All of these messages in our culture, in our world about identity can leave us confused and feeling lost if we don't measure up to whatever standards the world offers. But as followers of Christ, our true identity is found not in any assessment we take, and not in our careers, not in our financial status, not in our appearance, not in the clothes that we wear, but it's found in what Scripture says. And one of the best places to begin exploring our true identity in Christ is in the words of Isaiah 43. We're going to be in this text for two weeks, by the way. So these words of the prophet Isaiah, just to, again, get our bearings so that we can hear these words correctly, these words uh, of the prophet are addressed to the people of Judah in exile to Babylon. And, and so they of all people know what it's like to wrestle with questions of identity. Because their whole identity had been wrapped up into the community of Jerusalem with its temple system and its rituals of worship where they lived as God's people under God's reign in God's land. And that was who they were. And it was all tied together within those city walls and within that community of Jerusalem. And then came King Nebuchadnezzar and the city walls were broken down and the temple was destroyed. And when the people were carried away into Babylon, they felt like their identity had been lost. In Psalm 137, the psalmist gives voice to the pain of this lost identity in Babylon when he says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And there in the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And it's into this tangled mess of pain and identity confusion that God speaks to the prophet Isaiah. 
And he tells them who they really are. And in telling them who they really are, he is telling us who we are in Christ. Now, God says a lot of really beautiful things in these verses, which is kind of why I was drawn to them, because uh, there's, there's all kinds of stuff related to our identity in these verses. But as I was pondering that, a, a question was coming to my mind, and that is, well, what, what is the, the central message of the text? There's all these beautiful things, there's all these great and wonderful expressions and truths, but what is really the thing at the heart of it all, the one thing that is the center of the message? And I believe the prophet Isaiah gives a clear answer to that question by the way he structures this text. This, uh, this text, uh, these verses I've read probably like you many, many times, but I, I found something in my study that I'd never seen before, and I'm so excited about it. So I want to tr- uh, share that with you. Hopefully it translates. There was sort of an aha moment that I had, and I would like you to experience that as well. So the text is structured as a chiasm, which I had never seen before. We've talked about chiasm before. It is a pretty common literary device in Hebrew poetry especially. And by definition, chiasm is a form of repetition that involves parallel constructions. The word chiasm comes from the the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X, looks like that. And so when you look at the letter, you can see how it's arranged in, in corresponding parts and how it all comes together in the middle. And so the focal point is the center of the X. And in a similar way, biblical writers would sometimes use chiasm to arrange their material into corresponding parts with a focal point at the center. So let me give you an illustration. And I think I've used this before. Uh, So consider this piece of writing which I wrote to try to demonstrate chiasm. The sun fades and the grass withers, but my love for you never ends, though the flowers wilt and the moon wanes. Now, if you just read those words, you can pretty easily grasp the main sentiment, what, what this, this writing is about. It is clearly an expression, maybe not a very eloquent one, but it's clearly an expression of my unending love, right? Um, and so, but what, what may not be so obvious is that the statement is actually written and arranged. It's structured as a chiasm. So, when you look at it this way, you can see how A is parallel to A prime and B to B prime. So, for example, or so when you kind of walk through it, uh, the sun fading in, in point A is clearly a parallel concept to the moon waning at the end in A prime. Both are heavenly bodies that grow dimmer. And likewise, the grass withering in point B is a parallel concept to the flowers wilting in B prime. Both are types of vegetation that are fleeting. And that leaves then the statement in the, in the middle, which conveys the message of my undying love. Now, when it comes to Hebrew poetry, uh, chiasm is significant for two reasons. The first is that we know to interpret parallel sections in light of each other. Because the parallel sections are saying the same things, just in slightly different ways, we can use one to shed light on the other. So if one statement is a little bit unclear or maybe incomplete, we'll likely find some clarification or elaboration in the other. So it's a very helpful interpretive tool. If if something is, you know, you're a little bit uh, shaky on something in one area, you can look to the the parallel part and it'll, it'll add meaning and add clarity to what the writer is intending to convey. 
And by the way, that's really the, at, at the, the heart of everything, is trying to get at what is the writer intending to convey. And this is this literary device, chiasm, is one very important and very uh, significant tool to clearly communicate the intended message of the biblical writer. So that, that's the first reason why chiasm is significant, because we use the parallel sections to interpret each other. The second reason why chiasm is significant is because the center of the chiasm is the main message of the text. And here's where we're talking about the, you know, when we're interpreting a biblical text, we want to get at the heart of what is the biblical writer intending to convey. And this is just like a spotlight that, that screams and, and flashes, this is the message that I want you to hear. This is what I am intending to convey through this text. And so when you find chiasm, it is like a, it, it, it's, it, it's a wonderful thing because it is so clearly communicates, ah, now I know what the main message of this text is. It is the focal point. It's like there's a spotlight shining on it, exposing it as the central message. And we can then read the rest of the text through the lens of that central message. So let me show you, having said that, this little illustration, let me show you the chiastic structure of Isaiah 43. So it looks like this. And we'll, we'll walk through it together because it's a little bit, it's a lot for one slide. I, I get that. So the text begins in verse 1, which is A, at the, very, at the top of the, the diagram, with God saying that he created and formed his people. So if you, if you want to have your Bibles open, you can. You can look at both, or you can just listen. However you want to do it is fine with me. I didn't have room to, to put the actual verses there, so I kind of summarized it. I will say it, so you can either just look at the diagram and hear me say it, or you can have your Bibles open and follow along. So... Uh, a, uh, A at the beginning, verse 1, God saying, He created and formed His people. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. The parallel section then is at the end of the text, at the very bottom, A prime in verse 7, where God again says that He created and formed His people using the exact same words and language. But He adds that they were created for His glory. So He says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And you can see very clearly how those parallel each other. So we move a little bit. Uh, a little bit uh, closer then to the center. The next parallel statements are in the second half of verse 1 and verses 5 and 6, which is B and B prime in the diagram. So in verse 1, uh, uh, God, which is point B, God says that he has summoned his people by name. He says, I have summoned you by name and you are mine. And then down in verses 5 and 6, which is B prime, what do we see? Well, we see God doing just that, summoning his people from the east and the west and the north and the south. He says, I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. The next parallel statements are then in verses 2 and 5. In verse 2, which is letter C near the top, God tells his people not to be afraid because he has redeemed them and will be with them through their afflictions. This is in these familiar words, this is how God puts it. He says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flames will not set you Ablaze. A very beautiful way of God saying, don't be afraid, I will be with you. The parallel statement in verse 5, which is C prime, is stated saying the same thing, but much more simply. God simply says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. 
Now, as we move closer to the heart of the chiasm, we come to the next parallel statements in verses 3 and 4, which is uh, D and D prime, where God says that he will give nations in exchange for his people. God says in verse 3, point D, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Then he says the exact same thing in just a slightly different way in verse 4, which is D prime. I will give people in exchange for you and nations in exchange for your life. And all of that then brings us then to the very center of the chiasm, which is in verse 4, point E. So this is where the spotlight shines. This is the central message of the text. This is the focal point. This is the message that God wants his people to hear loud and clear. All of the glorious things in these verses are true, God says, because of this. Since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. So you want to know who you are, God says. You feel like your identity has been lost in exile. You you feel like a a driftless wanderer in the world. You, You feel rejected and despised and lonely and abandoned. God says, this is who you are. You are my beloved. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. I hope that translated even just a little bit, because when I found that, when I found that chiasm and and said that the God is screaming at you through this text that I love you, it, it changed everything for me. Charles Spurgeon once said that the love of God for his people is a truth too deep for preaching. Of course, he then went on to preach on it for a good long while. But his point was that it's it's more fit for contemplation instead of just talking about it. And I get what he's saying. There are no words to capture the, the beauty and the depth of God's love for us. To speak on it, to open your mouth and to say anything about it is immediately to tarnish it in some way. And Spurgeon said that we can never know the heights and depths of God's love for us. But he said, let us plunge ourselves into this river. Let us not just wade in it, but let us dive into the fathomless stream and swim in it as in a sea of bliss. And so if you, if ever you are feeling down or lost or ugly or ordinary, then let these words remind you who you are through faith in Christ. That the almighty God of glory, the one who is perfect in purity, the creator and sustainer of all things, the majestic king of all kings and lord of all lords, the God of angel armies who holds this entire vast universe in his hands, says, I love you. You are honored and precious in my sight. This is who you are. This is the deep truth that towers over all of your insecurities. You are loved. Spurgeon goes on to say, how precious must a believer be if he or she is precious in God's sight. What cares the most high for all the diamonds of Africa, he says or of all the gold and silver that could be heaped together to form a mountain range like the Himalayas. That golden mass would be nothing more than sordid dust in the sight of the Most High. And yet, he says, 
of his people. They are precious in my sight. This is the deepest, most foundational truth of our identity in Christ. This is the one thing that if you don't, if you take nothing else away about your identity, this is the one thing that you need to know that you are loved by God in Christ. But we can dig a little bit deeper into this text and ask, in what ways does God love us? What are the specific facets of his love for his people as revealed in these verses? And as I see it, there are four specific facets of God's love for us in this text. And we're going to look at just one of them this morning. That's why we're going to spill over into next week. Next week, we'll look at the other three. And so the first facet of God's love in this text, and the one that I want to focus on this morning, is that God loves us with an undeserved love. See, one of the striking things about the beautiful words of God's love for his people in Isaiah 43 is that they come right on the heels of the ugly truths about his people in Isaiah 42. God says that his people are blind and deaf in Isaiah 42. He says this, Hear you deaf, look you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? He goes on to say that his people are not only blind and deaf, but they're in a state of bondage and defeat. He says, this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They've become plunder with no one to rescue them. They've been made loot with no one to say, send them back. At the end of chapter 42, the prophet Isaiah makes it crystal clear why the people are in such a deplorable state. And he says it's because of their own hard-heartedness and sin. And the prophet says, Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. And so he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. That's how chapter 42 ends. And the very next thing that God says comes in 43. So the people to whom God speaks in Isaiah 43 are a people who have squandered his call, who have trampled down his purposes, who who traded in his transcendent glory for the common scrap metal of idols, who spat in the eye of the Holy One and found their treasure in the garbage bin of the nations. It is to these, the blind and the deaf, the rebels and the wanderers, the plundered and the dull, that God says in Isaiah 43, you are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. The love of God for his people is through and through an undeserved love. This is the very clear message of God's love in Isaiah 43, and it's a message that is, that is only amplified or magnified or elaborated upon in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 that to those who have been justified through faith in Christ, God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Get that image in your mind. To those who have been justified in Christ, God's love, like a big giant bucket of water, has been poured out into our hearts. And then Paul makes it very clear on what basis 
the love of God has been so lavishly poured out to us. He says this, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you hear the language? Still powerless, ungodly, still sinners. That is when God poured out his love on us. And he did it in the most profound and most costly way imaginable. He did it through the tortured death of his son. You see, the biblical idea that we are loved by God and this is why I want us to be clear on this. Uh, the biblical idea that we are loved by God has nothing to do with a therapeutic drivel and, and the whole self-worth movement that has taken our culture by storm. You know, maybe some of you remember the old uh, Saturday, Saturday Night Live character Stuart Smalley who would look in a mirror and put on his best smile and say to himself, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And something similar to that is what we find again and again at every corner in our culture saying, you're, you're worth it. You're, you're, you're worthy. You look, within, look within yourself. The biblical message is that we are loved by God not because we're good enough or smart enough or likable in any way but simply because God in his sovereign grace has set his affection on us. We are loved with an undeserved love. Charles Spurgeon said the quarry out of which we were hewn was no quarry of precious things. The pit out of which we have been dug was no pit in which rare stones were glittering. We were taken from common clay out of the ordinary ruin of mankind. We are fallen, depraved, and ruined, and yet God says you are precious in my sight. We are God's beloved, and through and through, from beginning to end, it is an undeserved love. By his own admission, Franklin Graham was a uh, rebel as a teenager and as a young man. It was not easy growing up is the oldest son of the world's most famous preacher. The expectations were high. The rules were rigid. And Franklin turned against the Christian values that his parents stood for. And really, arguably, the bottom point for Franklin came when he got kicked out of his conservative college in Texas for taking a co-ed off campus for a week and, pilot and uh, piloting a rented plane to Florida. That'll, that'll do it. And writing about that time in his life, this is what he says. The drive home from Texas was dreary. Maybe by driving slowly, I was prolonging the inevitable. I would have to face my parents. I knew they had to be disappointed in me. Well, I was disappointed in myself. They had invested a lot of money in my education, and now I messed everything up. I drove through the gate and started up the road to our home, imagining the lecture my parents would give me. And so many other times when I had come home, I could hardly wait to say hello to everyone, but there was no joy this time. And when I finally reached the house, I felt awful. 
I saw Mama standing on the front porch and I wanted to run and hide in the nearest hole. It was one of the few times I can remember not wanting to look her in the eye. When I walked up to her, my body felt limp. I barely had the nerve to lift my head. I couldn't extend my arms for a hug, but I didn't need to. Mama wrapped her arms around me, and with a, with a smile, she said, Welcome home. Friends, this is how God loves us. While we were steeped in our sinful ways, rebellious and wandering, corrupted and carousing, God held out his hands to us in Christ and he loved us. As for you, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You hadn't cleaned yourself up. You hadn't done anything to change. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We are loved with an undeserved love. As fallen people stained by sin and living in a world that sends so many different messages about where to find our identity. It is easy to feel lost and confused. It's easy to see ourselves as trapped in a prison of guilt and shame and, and failure to meet impossible expectations. And it's into this tangled web of confusion that God speaks. And he says, this is who you are through faith in Christ. You are precious and honored in my sight. And I love you. We are deeply and profoundly loved with an undeserved love. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That is who we are by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne in this time of silent response and prayer, breathe deeply into us, O Lord, this truth above all other truths, that in Christ, through true faith in Christ, we are precious in your sight. We are your beloved. Oh, Lord, may your spirit work in our hearts to receive that truth this morning.
I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you and nations in exchange for your life. Lord, may we receive this deep truth of your love for us in Christ. And may it change not only how we think and how we see ourselves, but may it change how we live for a love so deep and a love so amazing changes everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.